We are studying on Sunday mornings through the book of Hebrews, and we come today to Hebrews chapter 9. It's 28 verses, and with the Lord's help, we're going to look at all of these uh, verses uh, together. Hebrews chapter number 9, verse 1, verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly or earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all which had the golden censer, the ark of the covenant, overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. And over it were cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot speak in detail. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. Now the Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing which was a figure, a pattern for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and different washings and fleshly ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. But Christ, Having become a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament. That by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a covenant, a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator is alive. Whereupon neither the first testament or covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water, scarlet wool, hyssop, and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle And all the vessels of the ministry. For almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered into the holy place made with hands which are the figures, the patterns, the symbols of the true. But he has entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest did, entering into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then, that is, if that was the case, he would have to offer himself often, suffering since the foundation of the world. But now, once. In the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
And as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time. And the inference here is not to deal with sin. He's not coming again to deal with sin. He's coming again unto our salvation. One thing that I have been learning recently is how much we have a tendency to underestimate the significance of spiritual warfare. Peter tells us that we have an adversary, we have an enemy. We know his name even. He's called many things, but we understand our adversary to be Satan, Lucifer, the devil, the great enemy of God, the great enemy of God's people. And here's the thing about our enemy, our adversary. Peter says he is constantly roaming this earth, walking about, seeking whom he may devour. Now, I was thinking this week about that word devour. For for Satan, our enemy, is not walking this earth to just agitate you. Nor is he involved in his tactics and schemes just to give you a, a bad day every once in a while. Our enemy, Satan, our adversary, is walking about seeking whom he may devour, whom he may swallow up. He's trying to destroy our faith. And it's for this reason Paul says that as believers we are to wrap ourselves daily with the armor of God. That we may be able to quench or extinguish all the fiery darts, all the fiery arrows, the ammunition that Satan and his demons throw our way. I think we are more often than not unprepared, to be honest, for his attacks. Which is why we find ourselves at times caught off guard when they happen. Or even easily deceived by his, by his schemes and his tactics. At least I speak for myself in regard to this. I know I, I don't speak for you, but speaking for me, I, I believe this is true about me. I, I find myself often unprepared when Satan or his demons come to do their work. Because it's one thing to talk about spiritual warfare out there. It's quite an entirely different experience to deal with spiritual warfare in here. We we say theologically that we are in a battle. It's one thing to go through the battle, to experience it personally. To feel like you're in a constant fight. Against Satan. I think largely we don't give enough awareness to how much our lives are in the throes of spiritual warfare. But it shouldn't surprise us that we are. Because the Bible is is very clear. In fact, it, it carefully warns us about the seriousness of spiritual warfare. Even Jesus himself said To all of his disciples, I know when we read it in the English, in his discussion with Peter, it would appear that he was only saying this to Peter when he said Satan desires to have have you, because that's the best we can deal with in our our English. But but in the Greek, it's actually plural. He was talking to all of them. He's saying Satan desires to have you all. So, So Satan's objective in desiring to destroy our faith. It wasn't just something he wanted to do to Job. And it wasn't just something he wanted to do to Peter and the disciples there. It's not just something he wants to do with Jesus. Satan desires to have you. And he desires to have me. 
What do we call that? Spiritual warfare. And one of Satan's many schemes is to cast doubt on the truth of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Isn't that what he did in the Garden of Eden when he approached Adam and Eve and said, yeah, did did God really say, did, did God really mean that when he gave you this rule? He loves to cast a shadow over the promises of God's Word. He he wants to create within our minds a failure to trust the truth of God. To doubt. To live in despair. And that's what brings us to chapter 9 this morning. For the big theme under the new covenant that Satan would love to cast doubt on, especially in light of our sins before God, is is in relation to the power and sufficiency of Christ's shed blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Satan wants you and I to doubt the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. He wants us to question the sufficiency of Christ's blood over our sins. But what Satan wants to bring doubt on today, we have gathered in this room together as a people, whether our faith be strong or whether our faith be weak, we have gathered here to declare our dependency on the blood of Jesus Christ. For there is no redemption of sins. There is no life after this one without the power, the power of Christ's blood. These words have rang in my mind over and over again as I've studied this chapter the last couple of weeks. In fact, I was frustrated a couple of weeks ago because I'm trying to dive into this and I, I didn't feel I was getting to a good, clear explanation myself to be even able to present it to you. And then I was on the phone with with my father, actually, and we were talking about some things, and in the middle of talking about it, I just this 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 idea just jumped off to me. Trust the blood. Trust the blood. I believe that's the heart of Hebrews chapter chapter nine. Trust the blood. The blood of Jesus Christ. That, that's what he wants us to do. He wants us to trust the power of his blood. You see, the first 10 verses of the chapter highlight for us the the Old Testament uh, sacrificial system within the framework of the Old Testament tabernacle. Now, in preaching this morning, and I I do this often when when, when talking to others and training others, whether it's in a a seminary setting or even here in our church and helping uh, the men of our church as they teach and preach the Bible, one one of the points of, of, of preaching and teaching is that we want to follow the uh, the pace of the text. We want to follow the pace of the text. We don't want to go any further than the text goes, and we certainly don't want to back away from that which the text gives us. So it would be prudent for me this morning uh, to practice what I preach in following the pace of the text. And the pace of the text, according to verse 5, the writer says, in relation to all the pieces of the furniture in the tabernacle and how it's laid out and its significance and all that it means, it's actually quite humorous to me because he says at the end of verse 5, of these things we will not now speak in detail, all right? Uh, you won't believe how many commentaries I've read over the last couple of weeks where there's a lot of detail given to these things when the writer said, let's not spend many more time on this than we need to. Now, granted, I believe the original audience would have understood this language because they understood clearly what the Old Testament tabernacle was all about. Us, not so much. So I think it's important at least to touch on why he opens up with the tabernacle, why he talks about the holy place and then the holy of holies and all the significant features of the various pieces of furniture. In fact, to help this for you in your own study, and you can take this home, I've included there in your worship guide a diagram of the tabernacle. I've got it here on the screen as well for you to see. This is what the Old Testament tabernacle would have looked like. And you'll see in the diagram, again, something you can look at later, you can pinpoint all the different pieces of furniture and uh, look them up in your Bible, see what they were used for and the symbolism and the purpose of it. When the scripture says that God 
It required Moses to build the earthly tabernacle after the pattern of the heavenly tabernacle. This is what was accomplished. So the, the, the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly holy of holies that we have yet to see with our eyes has been patterned after uh, what we see here in the earthly tabernacle. What does tabernacle mean? Well, it means dwelling place. And in the book of Exodus chapter 25 God instructed Israel under the leadership of Moses to build this tabernacle, to use this tent-like structure as a place where God's presence would dwell among them. And so it was literally placed in the dead center of Israel's encampment. They, they knew that that's where the presence of God dwelt upon the mercy seat. And this is where they would go to, 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 to make their sacrifices, to, to seek to be right with God daily as well as on the day of atonement. It was divided into three sections. There was the outer court, as you see in the graphic. There was also inside the tent, the first section of the tent, the first room is called the holy place. And then behind the veil into the second room of the tent is called the holy of holies or the most holy place. Hebrews focuses on the holy place and the holy of holies. And again, we will not go into great detail, but I just want to mention at least the pieces of furniture that Hebrews does. He, he talks about the golden lampstand, which is located there in the holy place, the, the first room. It symbolized for us Jesus Christ as our light of the world, that in Christ we have direction. Not only do we see the golden lampstand, but we see also in the holy place the table of showbread. The, the, the bread would be placed out where they would, they would eat the bread. The priests were, uh, through their processes and rituals, were, out, were allowed to, to, to eat the bread, uh, representing uh, God's provision over them. And that's how we look at it in Christ. As the, as the candlestick, the lampstand, represents Christ as the light of the world, Christ, our direction, the table of showbread, presented Jesus to us as the bread of life. He is Christ, our sustenance. It is He who we feast on. It is He that we run to and find our provisions. I am, Jesus said, the bread of life. He that cometh unto me hungering, what? Will never hunger again. We also find in the holy place the altar of incense. The altar of incense was a place where the priests would gather. They would burn the incense. It would ascend up into the heavens. It symbolized the prayers that they were praying on behalf of themselves and behalf of the people. They were interceding on behalf of the people and sending those prayers up to God. But when we look at it in Christ, we see that the altar of incense represents Christ as our mediator, as our intercessor. That he has gone in our place. And because he has gone in our place, we now have the same access to God the Father in our prayers before him. Anytime, place, anywhere, we have access to God. We pray. We, we find that fulfillment in Christ, in Christ. But then there's the second room behind the veil, behind the curtain. It's called the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And there was one piece of furniture inside there that was of extreme importance. We understand it as the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I'm a visual guy. I was going to give you a graphic picture of what the Ark of the Covenant would have looked like. Uh, number one, I didn't have enough space in your worship guide. Secondly, most all of us have seen Indiana Jones, so I think we got a pretty good idea of what it may look like, okay? Here at the Ark of the Covenant is Christ our atonement. We look at the Ark of the Covenant and we are reminded that it is in Christ we have reconciliation with God. It is in Christ, in Christ, that we find the mercy of God. But not just anyone could go into the Holy of Holies, remind you. That veil, that veil, it was a, it was a picture of separation of God and man. No one could enter the Holy of Holies except the high priest alone, and only he could go in when he met the requirements on the Day of Atonement. And what was his purpose of going in behind the veil into the Holy of Holies where God's presence dwelled? It was there he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifices that satisfied for the next 365 days God's forgiveness of the sins of the people. But I want you to think about some things in relation to the ark. 
because there were some things inside of it. And inside the Ark of the Covenant were all reminders of man's sinfulness. Inside the ark, in the Holy of Holies, there's this constant reminder that Israel had failed God, that Israel had sinned against God, that Israel has constantly come short of God. For instance, the manna inside the ark of the covenant reminded them of their ungratefulness to God's provision in their life. Aaron's rod that budded was a reminder that they had failed against God's authority. In fact, they had rebelled against God's leadership of their life. And then there's the Ten Commandments. The commands written on the tablets, which was a constant reminder of their failure to keep God's holiness. So think about this. Inside the Holy of Holies, in the Ark of the Covenant, were constant reminders of who they are. Constant reminders of their weakness and their foolishness and their rebellion and their ungratefulness and their unholiness and unrighteousness and sinfulness. But the Ark of the Covenant had a lid. And the lid that was put on top of the Ark of the Covenant was called the Mercy Seat. And it was on the mercy seat where the presence of God between the cherubims would would rest. And the high priest would go in once a year on the Day of Atonement and he would sprinkle the blood of a sacrifice on top of the mercy seat. And God would accept that blood, that blood atonement for their sin. The blood of the mercy of God had covered all their sins and failures. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Because under the mercy seat, the law, constant reminder, I'm a failure. I'm unholy. I will never meet God's standard. I've been rebellious. I've been ungrateful. Uh, Under the lid, under the mercy seat, it is a constant reminder of the law of God which shows us just how weak we are. But the good news is, is that mercy covered the law. It covered their groanings. It covered their rebellion as they trusted the blood. But this was only a pattern of the true tabernacle. It was only a pattern of the heavenly holy of holies. These pieces of furniture, they were only symbols of the true and perfect fulfillment that would fully and finally reconcile God to man, because the old system, the old covenant, it was insufficient because it could not do what only God in sacrificing himself could do. And that is when we come to verse 11, and it just opens up for us in beauty. Because it says what the old could not do, verse 11, Christ did. He came as high priest of the good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. Christ entered with his own blood the most holy place. And he did it once. And he did it for all. And he's done it to obtain eternal redemption for us. You see, everything in the Old Testament points to Christ. And here we are reminded that the blood, the blood of the Old Testament sacrificial system, it points to the blood of Jesus Christ that was sacrificially shed, that was sufficiently shed for our sins. And that is the message I want you to grasp from Hebrews chapter 9 today. Wherever you may be, whatever weakness you may be experiencing, whatever spiritual warfare you find yourself in, whatever doubts have crept in your mind this week, trust the blood. Trust the blood. That's the message. Trust the blood of Jesus Christ. Because we're all sinners, aren't we? We're all sinners. Every single one of us. We live with the guilt and shame of our sins. We are reminded often of our past. Our failures are constantly, I mean daily before us. That's what David said in Psalm 51 and verse 3. He said, I I acknowledge my transgressions, and guess what? My sin, it is always in front of me. It's always before me. 
I can't even get up in the morning without being reminded that I'm a sinner. And I can't even get through half my day without being reminded that I'm a sinner. And I can't even go to bed at night without being constantly reminded I am a sinner. I was born in sin. I not only sin, I am sin. And like David, I also, also am constantly reminded of the sins of my flesh. The weaknesses of my soul. The failures of my life. But what do we do with it? What do we do with it when we're reminded of it? When we see it? When we, when we sense it? The truth is we can either attempt to do away with it on our own, which is, which is futile and hopeless, or we can trust the blood. <laughs> the blood of Jesus Christ. So, so what is it that the blood of Christ does for those who believe? Number one, write these down quickly. His blood cleanses our conscience to serve God out of love. That's the first thing. The blood of Jesus Christ, to those who believe in Christ, who trust the blood, the blood cleanses our conscience to serve God out of love. Look at verse 13. If the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean, if, if those things can sanctify the purifying of the flesh. In other words, if the, if the process and the system of the old covenant can make the externals of a person clean, then verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse the inside? I mean, the old can take care of the outside. How much better, how much more significant, how much more transformative that the blood of Christ, when it comes into our life, it changes the inside. It purges. It, it cleanses our conscience from dead works. Now, dead works is an interesting phrase here. I believe it's simply clear the way it's laid out. It's, it's works that bring death. Works that bring death instead of life. I, I think it speaks primarily of sin. Sin in general. Because when we sin, what does the Bible say? The wages of sin is death. And when we sin, it affects our conscience. It, it results in an evil, a defiled, or even a seared conscience. I think it also speaks of any effort on our own to earn a new heart. Because you need to understand this morning, any attempt to cleanse our own consciences is a dead-end road. It can't happen. But when we place faith in the blood of Jesus Christ, our internal being is cleansed. Our insides are changed. You see, under the old system, the conscience was never fully cleansed of the guilt of sin. It couldn't be. Because the sacrificial work was never fully finished. They had to go back the next day. And the next year, I mean, just as, as, as close as the Day of Atonement came to an end, there was waking up the next day and being reminded, we got to do this all over again next year because sin is never fully removed. The conscience is never fully relieved. But now, now the work has been finished. And it's been finished in Christ. And we who believe in Christ, we receive something that they did not receive. We receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And the fullness of the Holy Spirit not only changes the outside, but it produces within us a desire to serve God and to worship God and to live for God. That's the work of the blood of Christ. It doesn't just affect the externals. It transforms the internal. We want to serve Him. We want to worship Him. We want to live for Him. By the way, we don't do it out of fear. This is where the blood of Christ comes into play. We don't do it out of fear. We do it out of love. And that's the evidence of cleansing. We begin to serve the living God from a new heart that doesn't necessarily fear Him, a new heart that loves Him. That's the gospel, friends. Trusting the blood of Christ to cleanse our hearts because we know we cannot do it ourselves. But pastor, I'm, I'm already saved. And my conscience often condemns me 
of my past sins and failures. Anybody ever experienced that? I'm raising both my hands. We, we, we talked about a couple of weeks ago in Hebrews chapter 8. God doesn't have amnesia in the sense that he, he can't in his being remember what we've done. No, the Bible says when it relates to our sins, he, he doesn't remember them any longer because he chooses to treat us as if it never happened. But then there's our minds, our memories. I wish I would have done this differently. How could I have put myself in that situation? Oh, if I could go back. I, 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 just, I saw an old picture of me just the other day of when I was a teenager. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, if I could tell that guy a few things. Yeah, well, what do we do when the conscience still condemns us? I understand. We still commit sin. Two, two things that have been helpful to me. In this area is one, 1 John chapter 3, I think it's verse 20 or 21. Uh, I know it's in chapter 3, but 1 John chapter 3 says when our hearts condemn us, we need to remember that God is greater than our hearts. Trusting what God has done in us regardless of how we feel about our failures. But then here's the beauty of, of God's mercy on us. That even when we do sin, God has promised a way for our consciences to still be clear. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, purge our consciences. Why? Because we are trusting his blood to do in us what we cannot do. One writer said our consciences can remain clear as we confess our sin to God and trust and trust that the blood of Jesus is sufficient to make us right with him. We live with a clear conscience by refusing to wallow in the failures that God has forgiven. Church, I am preaching to me this morning. How do we do this? How do we keep from wallowing in our past? Trust the blood. Trust the blood. His blood cleanses our consciences to serve Him out of love. Secondly, His blood forgives our sins once and for all. His blood forgives our sins once and for all. So we get to verse 15 and we're reminded that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. That is, he's the go-between. And here's what's interesting about verse 15. It tells it that Jesus is even the mediator of those who were under the first covenant. If you study your Bible in any amount of time, especially as it relates to new covenant, old covenant, you're trying to figure all this out, the, the question will come to your mind very quickly. Well, if we are saved by what Christ has done for, the, for us in the cross, what about those who were alive when the cross had not yet occurred. Are they, are they saved the same way? Do they come to Christ the same way? And the answer to that is yes. Because whether it is we who live on this side of the cross or they who live on that side of the cross, God gave us the same formula. And the formula is faith in His plan. Faith in His plan. And so those who were under the first covenant, what did they do? They placed faith in the plan of God that foreshadowed a Messiah would come and atone for their sins. And so every sacrifice they made, they were looking not only at that moment, but they were looking ahead to the day when God would bring that promise to fulfillment. I like what one author said. He said, every sacrifice for sin made in faith under the Mosaic command was an IOU. Paid in full at the cross. It's a good way of looking at it. Every time they went in on the Day of Atonement, every lamb that was slaughtered, every blood that was sprinkled, it was an IOU in faith. I am trusting God your plan. I am believing that something better is coming. And it was paid in full when Jesus fulfilled that on the cross at Calvary. You see, we look back in faith, right? We look back at the cross. We thank him for what he has done. They were looking ahead to the day, believing God would accomplish something for them. So he goes on to explain how the covenant works, and it works like a will and testament. And for a will and testament to be enacted, we understand that death, death has to take place. 
No matter what your will says, you're going to relinquish to family or whoever. As long as you're alive and breathing, it doesn't matter what's on the paper because death has to come to play for that to become benefits to others. And so he says that this is how it worked, both in the Old Covenant and under the New Covenant. Blood was required. Blood was required because death was required for the blessings of the covenant, the blessings of the will to be experienced. And that's where we come to verse 22. Because at the end of verse 22, he says clearly that it is without the shedding of blood. It is without the shedding of blood. There is no forgiveness of sins. So the covenant maker had to die, had to shed his blood in order for the benefactors, the beneficiaries, to receive the promise. So God, who made the covenant, took upon himself the form of flesh and blood. And he came into this earth as the man Jesus, as the God who was Christ. And he laid down his perfect sinless life in death on a cross where he shed his blood in order to forgive the sins of those who would believe in him. And after that, he followed the pattern. He entered into the heavenly holy of holies. And Hebrews 9 tells us that as he entered the heavenly holy of holies, he appeared before the presence of God the Father On our behalf. He he didn't go in on his behalf. That's something different from the old system. Because the high priest, when he went in, he wasn't only going in on behalf of the people. He had to go in for himself because he himself was full of sin. Jesus is sinless. He is perfect. He did not go into the Father, the heavenly holy of holies, with his blood for himself. He went because you and I could not get in otherwise. We would continue to be on this side of the veil. We would continue to be restricted from the presence of God. And so Jesus Christ took his own perfect blood, the blood that he shed for us, and he walked into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, and he said, Father, I am here, and I am here on behalf of those who I died for. I am here on behalf of those who believe in me. Here's my blood. They now have access to you. And the Bible says that he did this one time. One time, verse 26. One time. And when he did it that one time, he did it for the purpose of putting away sin by the sacrifice of himself. I love that phrase in verse 26. This Jesus did once to do what? To put away sin. To put it away. He had to. Because there's no you and I getting into the Holy of Holies unless the sin is put away. He put it away. And by putting it away, he gave us the same access that he has. Think of that. God put your sin away and my sin away in his son Jesus so that I could have the same access to the Father that the Son has. I love that phrase, put away sin, put it away, put it away, put it away, put it away, put it away. We understand we talk about putting away sin. I'm not getting it back out. I'm putting it away. My wife spent a few hours yesterday afternoon cleaning up the downstairs as if our life has not been busy the last couple of weeks. One of the reasons that she likes to do a thorough cleaning of this is because we do have a dog. Don't we love dogs? Well, my dog has this problem of after putting up his toys and his blankets, he loves his blankets, he likes to get them all back out again. And so Kathleen spent all this time yesterday... I mean, she was, she was on the floor. You know what I'm talking about, men and ladies. I mean, she had the long stick vacuum cleaner, and she's just sucking up everything around. And I'm afraid if I wasn't going to move, I was going to get sucked up by the vacuum cleaner too. 
And as soon as she cleaned this whole thing and mopped the floors and got all the dog's toys and put them over here and his blankets and put them where he sleeps, lo and behold, just a few minutes later, here comes Walt. And he brings one blanket. And he brings his second blanket. And then he brings his third blanket. I could hear Kathleen saying, Walt, what are you doing? I've already put them away. My dad sent me a link this week to a man preaching my favorite, one of my favorite preachers. And in the message, the preacher said, if Jesus put your sin away, then why do you keep bringing it up? If Jesus put your sin away, then why do you keep bringing it up? And he did, church. He put our sin away. Well, how can I keep from bringing it up? Trust the blood. Trust the blood. Leviticus 17, 11 says it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Jesus said in Matthew 26, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. And again, he did this once, once, once. Verse 27 tells us that men only die once. By the way, there's a lot we could go into this. I don't have time to do that this morning or now this afternoon. But there's one reason why as Protestant evangelical Christian people, when we gather together as we will this Wednesday night to partake in the Lord's Supper, we do it in remembrance of what Christ has already done, unlike Unlike Catholicism, that teaches that every time we eat the bread and drink the cup, we are sacrificing Jesus all over again. Well, no, no, he only did this once, once, once. He's not suffering anymore. He already suffered one time. He put away our sin once. So so he doesn't need to be put to the cross every time we take communion. He doesn't need to die ever so often just to make sure that we're okay. That's what the old system was about. The new system is one and done. And then then there's this idea that men only die once when you get into reincarnation. The Bible is very clear. You die one time. You don't come back as Walt. Although there's been a few times I've kicked that dog around and I had other people in mind. Here's the significance of it. Follow along if, you, if, you, if you're with me in verse 27, 28. He says, men only die once. So, verse 28, Christ only had to die once. Men only die once, so Christ only had to die once. There was only one penalty for sin. One penalty for sin. And that penalty only needed to be paid one time. And Christ did it one time for all penalties, for all sin, for all death. So verse 28, when Jesus comes back, he's not coming back to deal with our sin again. And perhaps we live in that fear. I better be on my best behavior because Christ could come back tonight, you know. (laughs) If he comes back tonight and I'm not on my best behavior, then I'm going to get... No, that's not how it works. When Christ comes again, which he could come back tonight... When Christ comes back, he's not coming to deal with your sin. He's already dealt with your sin. And to God be the glory for that. No, he's not. He's not coming to. Once was sufficient. Spurgeon said it would be unjust for God to punish us for our sin. Because then God would be requiring two payments for the same sin. I chew on that. You see, the truth is, the blood of Jesus Christ can make you spotless in the eyes of God. Psalm 51, 7, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Isaiah 1, 18, though our sins be like scarlet, they will be white as snow. How does that happen? Trust the blood. Trust the blood. Finally, let me give you this third one. His blood gives us a heart longing for his return. His blood gives us a heart longing, longing for his return. And that brings us to the, the very... Again, last two verses of the chapter, as it is appointed unto men once to die, men only die once, and after that's the judgment. So Christ, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him, he will appear. Not to deal with sin, not to deal with sin. He's not coming to, coming without sin, not coming to deal with it. He's coming to finish our salvation. And that's important. 
Because it not only underscores for us that there is life here in verse 28 after death for those who are in Christ who trust his blood, but it, but it also points out to this great change, another great change that the blood of Christ does in us. It gives us a new heart. Ezekiel said that. We quoted that last Sunday. Ezekiel says, and I will give them a new heart. And what does that heart do? It doesn't dread the coming of Christ. It longs for the coming of Christ. <laughs> because it is for those who eagerly wait for him that he will appear, appear. Again, not, not to deal with sin, but to complete our salvation. And I, I know that maybe we struggle with some of that terminology, but you need to understand that there is a sequence in which the Bible teaches how salvation is not fully finished in our lives until Christ comes again. That doesn't mean that you're at risk of losing the salvation that he's given you because Christ is not yet. No, no, that's not what that means. Follow how salvation works. If you are saved, all of you can say with me, I have been saved. I am saved from sin's penalty. You remember the day in your life where you gave your life to Christ. You put faith in him. We understood the penalty. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So I put my faith in Jesus Christ. And at that moment, God saved me from the penalty of sin. He gave me the gift of, his Lord Jesus, of, the, of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am saved, I am saved from the penalty of sin. But I'm not just saved past tense, I am being saved right now. I am being saved, and I am being saved from the power of sin. Anybody else still struggle with sin? Raise your hand if you struggle with sin, all right? Hey, my hand's raised, look around. If your hand's not raised, the Bible says if you have no sin, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. Yes. I still struggle. And so salvation is not just a past event whereby God gives me some free ticket to heaven. No, he saved me for the purpose to conform me into the image of a Jesus Christ. And, and that's going to be a struggle on this earth because I still live in flesh. I still have a, a mind that, 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 that thinks wrong things. I still sin. I, I, still, I still rebel. But thank God he didn't just save me. He is saving me. I am being saved from sin's power. That means every year of my life I ought to grow closer and closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's evidence that you were saved. The, the fact that you are being saved is evidence that you have been saved. <laughs> I have been saved from sin's penalty. I am being saved from sin's power. I'm not the man that I used to be. Even in a saved sense. God has given me victory over some things I wasn't always thinking about before. I am being saved. And any time that old man sneaks back and thinks something, says something, does something in a way that, that, that he shouldn't have, I have to remind Satan, that was that old man that Christ already died for. But I'm a new man and I'm, I'm still being saved. But I will be saved. That's the third progression. I will be saved. I am saved from sin's penalty. I am being saved from sin's power. And thank God one day soon I pray. One day soon, I pray, I will be saved from sin's presence. Are you looking forward to that day? I am. I don't know how you've responded to everything going on in the last 18 months, but I just can't watch the news anymore. I, I got people telling me what's going on around the world. I just can't. I just can't. I'm, I'm longing for the day when Christ will come again. I'm longing for the day when sin will no longer be a problem for me. I'm longing for the day when the accuser will have nothing else to say. The day when my body will be transformed, transformed into a glorified body to be able to live in the heavenly holy of holies with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the blood of Jesus does. It changes our hearts not to dread his coming, but to long for his coming. And what makes that possible? Trusting the blood. Uh, I, I've been thinking all week about a hymn that was written back in the 1800s. In fact, we're going to sing it. I want to have our musicians, if they would, just go ahead and come and get ready in their place and as I'm studying this chapter, and I've, I've been thinking about it a lot in our study of Hebrews. It was written by a young lady whose name is Charity Bancroft from Ireland. And she wrote it in the 1800s. 
Churches in the early 19th century would include them into their hymnals, but it wasn't until probably the 1960s, 1970s that it really began to be popularized among churches, given new tunes and changed around in a way in which we're refreshed by it once again. But when I think about Hebrews 9, I think about the throne of God above. You know the hymn? We sing it often. Behold, look. Mache said, for every look you take at yourself and your sin, take ten looks at Christ. Behold, the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea. The great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his hearts. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue could ever bid me depart. Charity must have experienced some of the things that we experience in life. She, she gets to the third stanza and she says, When Satan tempts me to despair talked about that at the beginning of the message, right? We're in a war. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there, the one who made an end, an end, an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him. Him. He looks on Him and then pardons me. We're going to sing it in, my moment, in a moment. And don't mind me when we do. It gets me a little excited. I love my favorite stanza. One with Himself. I cannot die. My soul is purchased by His blood. My life is hid. It's hid. With Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Friend, trust the blood. Trust the blood. Whatever despair, whatever failure, trust the blood of Jesus. We have a high priest. He is in the Holy of Holies, and he is there for us. We long for his return. Let's stand together. Let's sing.